You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. As the Dutch government, a guy called Rutter, the Prime Minister, completely owned by the World Economic Forum, uh, Klaus Schwab, why has he just announced that the Netherlands, the second biggest exporter of food in the world, is targeting farmers to destroy them and get them off the land, which is where all these farming protests in the Netherlands have come from. People depend on you for what's left of the food. You control them. Where food is abundant and cheap, you do not control them. Where energy is cheap and abundant, you do not control them. Scarcity equals dependency equals control. And that's why they're targeting the food chain, they're targeting the energy supply, they're targeting everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 549 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. And that was a small clip that was sent to me. Let's see if I can trace this back sufficiently. <laughs> sent to me by a cousin of mine who was basically stumbling across it on social media where it had been shared by somebody else as a screen capture of a tweet from Benny Johnson. Benny Johnson was actually sharing it from some podcaster in the UK named Brian Rose's show, where he was interviewing a guy by the name of David. I think I'm going to say this right. Icky? Icky? I don't know. I'm not familiar. So that's David Icky or David Ike, or David Ike actually speaking there, if, if you follow that. <laughs> now, who's that, right? Who, who is David uh, Ike? We'll, we'll settle on that. I think that's what you uh, 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 are supposed to call him. That's what Wikipedia is calling him anyway. Uh, who is he? According to Wikipedia, he is a conspiracy theorist, former sports broadcaster, and football player. And just skimming through some of the first couple of paragraphs, he's into psychics and has endorsed the protocols of the elders of Zion and vibrational energy and infinite dimensions sharing the same space. Also believes in reptile people, that the archons or the Anunnaki have hijacked the earth. Weird stuff, right? Weird stuff. According to the very last sentence, he strongly denies these claims. Now, critics have accused him of being anti-Semitic and being a Holocaust denier with his theories of reptilians serving as a deliberate code. He's strongly denied those claims. It doesn't matter, right? That That's the, the long and short of it is... It really doesn't matter if he's a conspiracy theorist, and it doesn't matter who he was sitting down with to communicate these things, or who screen captured that in the case of Benny Johnson. Who's Benny Johnson? Is he credible? Is he legitimate? And it really doesn't matter who screen captured Benny Johnson's share of <laughs> the real Brian Rose interviewing David Icke. And then who sent that to me? It really doesn't matter, right? It's either true or it isn't true. And that is part of what we're going to get into as we're talking about a Christian manifesto by Francis Schaeffer, which I read yesterday mostly and then finished up this morning. A great follow-on for the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels. It almost doesn't matter at all. Whatever the case may be with David Icke, Brian Rose, Benny Johnson, whoever shared that chain to social media that my cousin found it, that he sent it to me, that I 
would have credibility that I would tell it to you and you might tell it to somebody else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It almost doesn't matter because it's either true or it isn't true. And so this is one of those curious things that in our day to call somebody a conspiracy theorist or to say that what they're claiming is a conspiracy theory is so effective. Why is that so effective? Why does that work? I mean, somebody can be a conspiracy theorist, whatever that is, what they can be communicating is a conspiracy theory and also what they're saying can be true. And if the real important thing is whether it's true or it's not, I actually am more concerned about people who are not dismissed as conspiracy theorists. <laughs> you know, if they say something that's not true, but they're not regarded as conspiracy theorists, that's more concerning to me than if a conspiracy theorist happens to say something that is true and we believe it or we don't believe it. We dismiss it or we embrace it. But both sides of the coin, the important thing is what is true. Is what is said is, is what is said relevant to the decisions that need to be made, the way that we perceive the world, the way we perceive ourselves in the world, the way we relate to one another, is what is being said not just true in the details, but also true in the connection of those details to one another. And on the other end, what do we do about that if it turns out that, okay, I'm getting accurate information that accurate information is being understood. Now what? Well, you, you got to do something with it. And if you can't do anything with it, I think that's actually nearer the point for why a lot of things that might be true are dismissed quickly. Because if they are true, there's such big problems that it causes us to just shut down. It's not realistic for us to do something about those really big problems it's a high risk, low reward or low probability of reward scenario. Now, if I'm right, that that's the reason why a lot of us human beings, I think this is just a factor of human nature. I think this is how we're wired and there's a certain element or a certain aspect of it that's totally healthy, totally normal, but it can, it can be twisted, right? It can be manipulated, or it can be exploited. So, for instance, if somebody is saying true things, but those true things are very inconvenient, they don't reflect well on powerful people who stand to lose quite a lot, wealthy people who have gotten their wealth in dishonest ways, if those people can exploit the very human tendency to just shut down when we think something is not true or not relevant or there's nothing to do about it, if they can exploit that and fiddle with our perceptions so as to take us out of the game, well, then they will continue on doing bad things and getting away with it if they've been doing bad things. Now, it's interesting, like I've been talking about here in the past couple of podcast episodes, I just finished up Neuroscience Meets Psychology, which is... Doctors Peterson and Huberman sitting down for a chat, a fascinating discussion concerning what we know about dopamine and the brain expecting rewards or punishments and how that relates to goal setting, habit forming, addiction, motivation, in short, us doing anything or saying anything or planning for anything, or expecting anything. It all goes back to dopamine. And so you want to be very intentional about how you are motivating yourself. If you're lacking motivation for a good thing, you want to want to, but you can't quite get yourself to start. And you're just stuck in this bad loop, this dysfunctional loop that's either keeping you from taking advantage of good opportunities or it is causing you to come back again and again to things that are hurting you and hurting the people around you. Destructive behavior, destructive ways of relating, destructive habits, addiction to substances which are destroying your health, destroying your mind, destroying your relationships, destroying your productivity, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, if, if there's something that we can do to interrupt, what is that thing? And how do we know? How do we know whether we should shift from being motivated by this to being motivated by that? And that's what you have to do, by the way. You, you, can't, you can't just not want anything, emptying yourself of all desire. That's a great way to just die. It's a great way to be irresponsible. And actually, it's self-defeating because if you want to want nothing, well, then you want to want nothing. And so you've got to deal with that. So you've got to stop wanting to want nothing. And that's just not reasonable. That's not how we're made. We are made to desire good things. Or I should say, originally, God's original design for us before sin corrupted us and now sin infects everything. And if infects everything in creation, everything is tainted. We are tainted, compromised by sin to where we don't necessarily always want what is good. And we don't always necessarily hate what is evil. And that's one of the important character qualities of Jesus. And it's an aspect of, or it's a way of expressing his sinlessness that he loved what is good and he hated what was evil. And he still does, by the way, because he's seated at the right hand of the Father forevermore. But Christ loving what is good and hating what is evil is an example for us. Now, some people want to say that we should only love God. We shouldn't love anything or anyone except for God. And they misinterpret, they misunderstand. And I'm afraid to say they haven't studied the word carefully enough, and they have embraced, without probably knowing it, a lot of Gnostic-type philosophy. They've been taken captive by vain and human philosophy. This is why it's very important for us to be going to God's word, praying and asking God for wisdom as we're reading, consulting others who are also reading the text and earnestly desiring to understand God's will for their life. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You know, I was talking with my friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik, here recently. We had his family over, and it was really great. It was really super. It was the first time we've ever had them over to our house, their whole family. We've talked about it for a long time. We've gotten together to do other things here and there. Don't get me wrong. But we've never had his whole family over, and it was super. Like, it was so nice. It was so sweet. His kids got along great with our kids. His wife had a great conversation with my wife. Me and him and his oldest son and my oldest son played a board game together called Unmatched. It was super fun. And they were very intentional bringing board games that they, as he put it, figured we would really like knowing what they know about us. They would enjoy playing with us because we would really enjoy those games and probably hadn't ever played them before. Meanwhile, Lauren smoked some pork and some burgers and it was just the food was delicious. The conversation hanging out was super sweet. But in the course of small talk with Paul before we were ready to eat or while we were eating, I got to talking with him about this whole business with dopamine. And we were talking about fasting as well and how fasting does a lot of things in our brains and in our bodies. There's a lot of things that happen. Whether you're a Christian or you're not, it, it doesn't matter necessarily to the way that you're designed. The benefit for the Christian is, by God's grace, we're able to understand what is really going on, right? What's broken and how does it get fixed? But it, but it's so interesting, right? It's, it's so interesting. As I'm talking with Paul, about this whole dopamine business and how does it relate to fasting and how does it relate to praying and the way that we as Christians conclude our prayers, amen. And even the Lord's prayer, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Paul and Mike in particular have been preaching through it each Sunday. And here recently, a couple of Sundays ago, the Lord's prayer, as we call it, when the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, we say, when we say the Lord's Prayer, 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We think of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so what we have is not the obliteration of desire, like the Buddhists would say. We don't have the obliteration of wanting in prayer or in fasting. What we have is a recalibration, not of God. We're not recalibrating God, but what we're doing is we're taking our requests to him. Some people would say, well, if God already knows what we're going to pray and ask for, and he already knows what we need, why do we need to ask? And that's not the point. The point is he wants us to ask. There's a relational aspect here that's very important. It is not just the getting of the thing. If we only want the thing and we don't want that relationship with our creator, well, it's just not going to work. It's just not. It's broke. It, it's not that it will break. It's already broken. And that's what fixes it. That's what restores us. We are broken and we need repairs. We need to be made whole. We need to be recalibrated. So in fasting, your dopamine cycle shifts. And all of a sudden, it's possible for you to get out of these unproductive loops. Some people will say they just feel like they're stuck in a rut, right? I just I feel like I'm kind of going through the motions and I don't know. I don't know. I just I keep doing the same thing and there's something off, right? But, you know, what could be off is that you've got a dopamine cycle, so to speak. You want and are rewarded in wanting just enough to keep you on a merry-go-round or a roller coaster. And how you'll need to get off of that roller coaster is by wanting something better. Not by just not wanting this thing or I want to get away from this thing. You've got to pursue what is good. You've got to do what is right. You've got to want something that's going to actually make you happier. It's, it's not a bad thing to want happiness, by the way. Can I just make that point? Can I just say that? It's not bad to want happiness. The question is, where are we going to be happiest? Where is happiness found? The Christian Manifesto, which I read yesterday and today, talks a lot about politics, by the way. And we might do well to consider the meaning of we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not that you have a right to happiness per se, but you have the right to pursue happiness. <laughs> you have the right to pursue happiness, which is to say you have the right to, generally speaking, freely Live in pursuit of what's going to make you happy. And it's interesting in listening to Huberman and Peterson talk back and forth about dopamine. It's actually the case that happiness, the happiness hormone, dopamine, dopamine is the highest. It hits the peak level right before we receive the thing that we think is going to make us happy. And then once we've received that, there's a kind of leveling off, and it dips down into more of a tranquil state, unless there's a disappointment. If there's disappointment right there, right when we thought we were going to get the object of our happiness, then we plummet, and we actually go and overshoot the level of happiness we were at before we had even wanted anything. And this is where the Proverbs tell us that hope deferred makes the heart sick, because What's actually happened is our brains got all excited. Neurons started firing and putting things in place to be ready to do what is necessary and to enjoy the thing, but also to get the thing. And so then we have to ask the question of what do we want? What should we want? If we want the wrong things, somebody comes along and says, hey, you shouldn't want that. You should not want that. It's a bad thing for you to want that. It's not going to make you happy. Well, if they're right and we're wise, we want to hear it. We want to consider it. 
Now, if they're wrong, we don't want to listen to them because they might get us to stop wanting a good thing that we should want. It would be good for us to want. They might want us to stop wanting or finding happiness in a good thing because they want us to want something else that's more advantageous to them. And this is why even coveting is such a toxic sin. Even to covet what is our neighbors, to be jealous of our neighbors, is such a toxic thing. Because for one thing, we are not happy for them. Every moment that we're jealous of them, we're not happy for them. We're not rejoicing with those who rejoice. We're not weeping with those who weep. But for another thing, we're not wanting good things for us. And the longer we go on not wanting good things or pursuing the good things that God has for us, the longer we go on like that, all the while growing in resentment at the gap between what others are enjoying and what we are actually enjoying, the wider that gap gets, the greater the resentment will grow unless something interrupts at a certain point. Now, if somebody is very simple and all they want is that very simple fix, like a drug addict, we're addicted to dopamine and they're getting it from a bad place or from wanting bad things, the anticipation of getting things that they shouldn't get that don't belong to them. Bread eaten in secret is the best, as the woman Folly calls to those who lack insight. If you start trying to interrupt what they want by telling them, no, don't want that, want this instead, if they listen to you, they might take a big hit on the dopamine if they only agree temporarily that what they want is not good and they refuse to want what is good instead, if they can't replace those desires for what isn't rightfully theirs with what could be rightfully theirs. Now they're going to be grouchy. Now they're going to be grumpy. Now they're going to be unpleasant. Now they're going to be maybe even abusive, like Proverbs talks about. Don't rebuke a fool. Don't rebuke a wicked man. He'll just hate you for it. He'll abuse you for it. Don't rebuke a scoffer. That is, don't tell him to just stop in a way that is instructive and corrective, like he's going to listen. If he's not going to listen, then don't. But do correct a wise man, because he will love you for it. If you rebuke a wicked man, He's going to hate you for it. You rebuke a wise man, a righteous man, he will love you for it. That's how to win friends and influence people, the kind of people that you want to be friends with. You want to surround yourself with people who are willing to be corrected. They're willing to be made wiser. That's good for you to be around those people because they will give you good advice when you're in a pickle. But here's the thing too, going back to what David Icke had to say, if you can control the food supply, if you can control energy supply, then you control people. And why is this? Well, because food is a basic need. Also, people enjoy food. So it's a want and a need, both and at the same time. And so you can motivate people like rats in a maze. I will give you food. I will give you a food pellet if you... Do what I want you to do. And this is where if we don't believe that man is created in God's image or that we will ultimately give an account to God for how we relate to our fellow man, it can get really, really dark. It can get really ugly if we're doing the experiments on the animals and then we say that man is just an animal. And that's all he is. And then we start doing all the things to people that we do to animals. Watch out because there are some awful horrible, evil things that are done to animals. And people are not inherently good. That's just all there is to it. Too much of what is dismissed as conspiracy theory, I'm convinced, has to do with us not actually believing, not realizing, not understanding the sinfulness of man. We are stuck on the idea that man is inherently good, and man is not inherently good. Man was inherently good, Prior to the fall, no mas, no more. We are not anymore. Now, some Christians would say depravity 
affects and corrupts so much of who we are as people that we are literally incapable of doing anything good apart from the grace of God. Even the good that we think we're doing apart from the grace of God is not actually good. It's all corrupted. It's all tainted. It's all compromised. And they might be right. I I see some people who go too far with that. And I think, well, if that's true, then even your capacity to evaluate and assess what specifically is corrupted and compromised and tainted by sin, where and how is corrupted. And now we're stuck in a rut where we're going to say that there is nothing good. There is nothing to want or to do or to enjoy. And that's, ooh, that's a surefire way to actually end up in a worse state. God tells us to desire what is good and to hold fast to what is good and to pursue what is good and to walk in good deeds and to, and, and to desire good gifts. That's one of his attributes, his characteristics that he wants us to know. And he communicates again and again. Yes, he is a righteous judge. Yes, he is a warrior. Yes, he is mighty. Also, He's a father who gives good gifts to his children for our enjoyment. If we are incapable of enjoying the good gifts that God gives to us, something is badly broken and we are not going to do the good that we ought to do at the pace and at the level that we could. If Satan can't pluck us out of God's hands, those who the Son has, the Father has given to him, and no one comes to the Father except through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the next thing Satan will try to do is test us, trip us up, and make us unproductive, or take the edge off, because he's our enemy. Because that's what enemies do. That's what especially clever, devious enemies do. They attack your will to fight. Sun Tzu would be a good one to read on this from a human standpoint. Also, the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. This is also why when George Orwell writes 1984, and he's talking about what's done to Winston, the main character, why he is being told to answer that two plus two equals five. It has nothing to do with the party believing that two plus two actually equals five. That's not the point. The point is to destroy the will to fight, to resist, to oppose, to disobey, even in a trivial thing like the answer to a math equation. The point is not the answer to two plus two. That's simple. That's easy. And they know that they're lying and they don't even actually care if they persuade you. The point is not to persuade. The point is to control. This is also the case in our day, with our current political situation here in the U.S. and around the world. This is our situation. And this has been the situation for a long time, and it takes different forms. And this is part of the reason why it's so beneficial to study history, because you can see what changes and what stays the same. The more things change, the more they stay the same. That's the old saying. There is no new thing under the sun, as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, What changes and what stays the same? What are the constants? The constants have to do with human nature. What changes? Well, that's individual preference. That's a matter of language, culture, climate, environment, opportunity, the blessings of God. Switching gears here a little bit, I'm going to talk about something totally unrelated, and then we'll loop back around. The story of the teddy bear. This is a write-up over at the National Park Service website, nps.gov. What's in a name? More than you may realize, come join Ranger Alyssa, who will share the intriguing history behind the name Teddy Bear. Did you know that the teddy bear was invented in honor of President Theodore Roosevelt? It all began when Theodore Roosevelt was on a bear hunting trip near Onward, Mississippi, on November 14, 1902. Mississippi Governor Andrew H. Longino had invited him But unlike other hunters in the group, Theodore had not located a single bear. Roosevelt's assistants, led by Holt Collier, a born slave and former Confederate 
cavalrymen cornered and tied a black bear to a willow tree. They summoned Roosevelt and suggested that he shoot it. Viewing this as extremely unsportsmanlike, Roosevelt refused to shoot the bear. The news of this event spread quickly through newspaper articles across the country. The articles recounted the story of the president who refused to shoot a bear. However, it was not just any president. It was Theodore Roosevelt, the big game hunter. Clifford Berryman, a political cartoonist, read the article and decided to lightheartedly satirize the president's refusal to shoot the bear. Berryman's cartoon appeared in the Washington Post on November 16, 1902. Morris Mitchum, a Brooklyn candy shop owner, saw the cartoon and had an idea. He and his wife, Rose, also made stuffed animals, and Mitchum decided to create a stuffed toy bear and dedicate it to the president who refused to shoot a bear. He called it Teddy's Bear. After receiving Roosevelt's permission to use his name, Mitchum mass-produced the toy bears, which were so popular that he soon founded the Ideal Toy Company. To this day, the teddy bear has worldwide popularity, and its origin can be traced back to Theodore's fateful hunting trip in 1902. Now, this is great. Right? This is great stuff. Great story. Very sweet. Note here a few things. One, that that's quite a story, but also, two that you probably didn't know that. And it is a happy story, right? Theodore Roosevelt having mercy on the bear, also rejecting the idea that it would it would be all the same if he shot the tied-up bear versus if he actually hunted it down. He recognized that as being of a different character and quality. It would not be satisfying. It would not reflect well on his character. Character was more important to him than actually getting this animal. Actually, that was the whole point, right? The point was not just to go out and shoot animals because he enjoys shooting animals so much. A lot of non-hunters miss this. They think that people who are into hunting are just machismo Neanderthals. No, no. This has something to do not just with the provision of food, but character, the building of character by pursuing an objective, enduring hardship, the thrill of actually having a successful hunt is all the greater because there is pain and discomfort and uncertainty and challenge. Teddy Roosevelt didn't just want to kill a bear, right? The point was forming and demonstrating good character. That gets picked up because other people recognize, hey, that's remarkable. That's quite a story. And it also changes the image that people have of Roosevelt. If he's known as this big game hunter and this man's man, this hard charger, this militant agitator, but he's not willing to shoot a tied up bear that's totally at his mercy. Hmm, okay, so maybe all these other aggressive actions are not about just being violent, right? He's not hes not just a violent man for the sake of violence. He's an aggressive man trying to do good things, trying to make a strong body that is capable, trying to develop good character so that he is able to do what he needs to do. In the real world, the hunting is just practice. It's not about actually getting that animal and eating it necessarily. I mean, that might be desirable in some cases, but the big idea is character. Switching gears here, again, John Knox over at Not the Bee shared a little something four days ago, January 27th. King David's name was just found on a 2,900-year-old slab. John Knox is probably not his real name, but nevertheless, John Knox writes, in what is becoming a regular installment of more evidence that the Bible is true, Archaeologists have made a new discovery uncovering the name of King David on a slab dated to be about 2,900 years old. So the stone, the Misha steel or Moabite stone, was discovered about 150 years ago. And they have just begun to read and decipher what was originally written on the slab. There was a paper mache impression that was made before it was damaged in 1869. So it was discovered in 1868. It wasn't properly 
protected, guarded, stored, transported. And so it was damaged just a year after it was discovered. But now, using some updated modern methods, a team from West Semitic Research Project of the University of Southern California is recognizing this piece of evidence and analyzing it. The new technology allowed Lemaire and Delorme to decipher three letters in the phrase that were not previously legible. The stone contains a possible reference, and this is a quote, to the house of David as Judah's rulers, which seems to support King David as a historical figure. A summary of the research says, thanks to recent photographic evidence, our authors argue that this reading can now be confirmed. So 3,000 years ago, references to the house of David why would we be surprised? Why Why should that be surprising? It shouldn't, but it is to some people because they think that the Bible is made up because they've been lied to. They've been misled. They've been misinformed. They've wanted the wrong things. They've been told things that are not true and told that things that are true are not true so as to get them to want what is beneficial to, advantageous to certain men who want not just wealth but also power more and more and more all the time. And they themselves are stuck in a dopamine loop that will ultimately destroy them because they're at war with God. He who sits in heaven laughs. They're stuck in a very, very vicious cycle. And it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Let's talk briefly about something discussed by David Icke whether David Icke is somebody we should trust or whether he's reputable, whether he's a conspiracy theorist, it doesn't matter to my interest, which is what is true? What is actually going on? He references the Dutch farmers being forced off their land, the Netherlands being this major exporter of food. We see our food prices going up and up and up and up. It is not all the war in Ukraine. It is not all COVID having disrupted supply chains, this is also part of the Great Reset. And that is true. This is part of a push for global communism and for a one-world government. It is. They say as much. They admit it. They've been saying it for years. They want to do that. And now is their time. And now they're going to try it. And are we going to try and stop them? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we are. Not sure. This whole business with uh, Dutch farmers, it is a real story. And it's curious. Do this, right? Do this. Don't listen to me prattle on about the Dutch farmers. Do a quick Google search for the Dutch farmers' protests and tell me if you see a non standard, non corporate media, leftist, mainstream media source listed by Google in the first page. It's all corporate media all the way down. Why is that? Because the corporate media is going to spin this to make the farmers the bad guys and to make the state acting on behalf of this global vision, this great reset initiative into the altruistic hero. They're the good guys. The farmers are the bad guys. Even if it was their farm, even if we need the food, they're the bad guys. They're the potential terrorists. They're the criminals. They're the crazy people. They're the conspiracy theorists. Don't listen to them. It's a very curious thing. It's a very, very curious thing. Moving on. Andy Stanley owes the church some answers. Peter Heck writes for Not the Bee. And it's interesting because my friend Dave Kanashog recently went to an Eric Metaxas event in Fort Collins where Andy Stanley's book, Not In It to Win It, came up. Eric Metaxas recently wrote a book that is sitting on my shelf, and I need to read it. Letter to the American Church. Eric Metaxas wrote this book because he believed, as he said in Fort Collins recently, that God was telling him to write this book. It was a conviction. This is what God wants me to do. And right at the same time that he's writing this book or getting ready to write this book, he gets sent a free copy of Not In It to Win It by Andy Stanley. And I haven't read that one either. I've heard that it is, oh, exactly what you would expect. 
It is spiritualizing cowardice. It is neo-Gnosticism. It is let's be conformed to the pattern of this world because that is how we're going to define what is a good testimony because that supposedly advances the gospel. Andy Stanley here recently got in a bit of hot water for some comments in a sermon about homosexuality. I'm going to play a clip for you. Take a listen. This is Andy Stanley preaching here just a few weeks ago. Figure out how to get straight people as excited about serving and engaging as the gay men and women I know, we would have a volunteer backlog. That's my experience in our churches. Well, I, I'm a gay person, I'll just read it to you. A gay person, when I say gay men and women, okay, a gay person who still wants to attend church after the way the church has treated the gay community, I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do. They have more faith than a lot of you. A gay person who knows, you know what? I might not be accepted here, but I'm gonna try it anyway. Have you ever done that as a straight person? Do you, where do you go that you're not sure you're gonna be accepted and you go over and over and over and over? Only your in-law's house. That's the only place you go where you know you're not completely accepted, but you go over and over and over and it's because you have to. But other than the in-laws, what environment do you continue to step foot in knowing at any moment you may feel ostracized? No place, I'm telling you, the gay men and women who grew up in church and the gay men and women who've come to faith in Christ as adults who want to participate in our church, oh my goodness. I know 1 Corinthians 6 and I know Leviticus and I know Romans 1. It's so interesting to talk about all that stuff, but just, oh my goodness, a gay man or woman who wants to worship their heavenly father who did not answer the cry of their heart when they were 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. God said, no, and they still love God. We have some things to learn from a group of men and women who love Jesus that much and who wanna worship with us. And I know the verses, I know the clobber passages, right? We gotta figure this out. And you know what? I think you are. Mm. Not in it to win it. The problem here is that Andy Stanley is actually in it to win it. But what he wants is he wants favor with the world. He's going to flatter the homosexuals because he thinks he will be approved of in so doing. He's not concerned first and foremost about God's approval, God's pleasure, honoring God when he is saying what he's saying. He's exchanging bitter for sweet. This is corrupt. This is wicked. This is false teaching. You can't prioritize your feelings about the gay community over the scriptures, but that's exactly what he just did. Oh, yeah, I know the Bible says things about gay people, whatever, whatever. They volunteer, right? They come in and they volunteer and they show up and they're better Christians than you guys are. You straight people, you should look up to them. You should try to be more gay, apparently. He has no business being a pastor. He has no business being a minister. He is not rightly handling the word of truth. And if all the congregation can do in that case is laugh or else keep silent, not in it to win it indeed. Not if winning the crown of God's approval is what we're talking about. No, I suppose you're not in it to win that. But you are trying to win approval. You're trying to say peace, peace when there is no peace. You're a blind guide. You're a hypocrite. You're play acting. And that you would lecture the church, that you would accuse the brethren for being unwelcoming towards unrepentant sinners. Now, here's the thing. Such were some of you. That comes into play in the New Testament. Paul writes about who all will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Guess what? Paul literally writes that gay men, whether they are the givers or the receivers of homosexuality, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are other types of habitual sinners who practice these things. It's an art. It is, it is a lifestyle. It's not just a sin. It's their lifestyle. It's their identity. They are what they routinely do. It's what makes them happy. It's what they enjoy. That's where they get their dopamine hit. That's the merry-go-round that they are on. They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
Nope, they won't. They will be cast out into outer darkness. And what does Paul say? Such were some of you. Lest we get to forgetting the goodness of God's grace that he has called us out of that to life more abundantly. Such were some of you, past tense, such were some of you. So it's not possible for a Christian to be a Christian and also all of those things that Paul mentions. If you are those things, and I'm not talking about you are tempted or that's a struggle or I'm I'm saying you cannot have that be your identity and say that you are a Christian. No, no, you can't. That's demonic. That's evil. What Andy Stanley is preaching is straight from the pit of hell. And it will cause men and women and children who believe in it to go to hell. And if that seizes the American church, if that vision captivates us, it is vain and human philosophy that is us being conformed to the pattern of this world. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. There is no grace for that. The people who think that Andy Stanley is right are going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Lord, Lord, have we not done many good works in your name? Depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. You worker of lawlessness. And what do we want instead? It's not enough to just beat up on the people who are deceived, misled, corrupt, dishonest, hypocrites, blind guides, false teachers. No, we have to want what is good. Also love what God has for us. We hate what is evil. Absolutely. We love what is good and we cling and we hold fast to what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? He has shown you, O man, what is good. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. I am in it to win it, actually. I press on. And it's interesting. In reading Francis Schaeffer's book, he talks about John Witherspoon representing New Jersey at the Continental Congress. Witherspoon, born 1723, died 1794. He was president of college of New Jersey from 1768 to 1792. He was twice elected to the state legislature of New Jersey, also a minister. So here's a little bit of his bio from ushistory.org. And I quote, John Witherspoon brought some impressive credentials and a measure of public acclaim with him when he joined the colonies in 1768 as president of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton, by the way. Did you know? Now you know. Born in 1723, he received the finest education available to a bright young gentleman of that era. John attended the preparatory school in Haddington, Scotland. He proceeded to Edinburgh, where he attained a Master of Arts, then to four years of Divinity School. At this point, he was 20. In 1743, he became a Presbyterian minister at a parish in Bythe, where he married, authored three noted works on theology. He was later awarded a Doctorate of Divinity from the University of St. Andrews in recognition of his theological skills. It was only through a protracted effort on the part of several eminent Americans, including Richard Stockton and Benjamin Rush, that the colonies were able to acquire his service. In colonial America, the best educated men were often found in the clergy. The College of New Jersey needed a first-rate scholar to serve as its first president. Witherspoon was at first unable to accept the offer due to his wife's great fear of crossing the sea, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> I would come. <laughs> I, I would love to. I really would. See, my wife is afraid of transatlantic voyages, though. So it's going to be a no from John Witherspoon. She later had second thoughts. This continues. And a visit from the charming Dr. Rush secured the deal. He emigrated to New Jersey in 1768. Dr. Witherspoon enjoyed great success at the College of New Jersey. He turned it into a very successful institution and was a very popular man as a result. He also wrote frequent essays on subjects of interest to the colonies. While he at first abstained from political concerns, he came to support the revolutionary cause, accepting appointment to the Committees of Correspondence and Safety in early 1776. Later that year, he was elected to the Continental Congress in time to vote for R.H. Lee's resolution for independence. He voted in favor and shortly after voted for the Declaration of Independence. 
They made a notable comment on that occasion in reply to another member who argued that the country was not yet ripe for such a declaration, that in his opinion, it was not only ripe for the measure, but in danger of rotting for the want of it. Witherspoon was a very active member of Congress, serving on more than a hundred committees through his tenure and debating frequently on the floor. In November 1776, he shut down and then evacuated the College of New Jersey at the approach of British forces. The British occupied the area and did much damage to the college, nearly destroying it. Following the war, Witherspoon devoted his life to rebuilding the college. He also served twice in the state legislature. In the last years of his life, he suffered injuries first to one eye, then the other, becoming totally blind two years before his death. He died on his farm, Tusculum, just outside of Princeton, in November of 1794, a man much honored and beloved by his adopted countrymen. Do you know where I learned about John Witherspoon? Why I thought to look him up? Well, I'll tell you. It has everything to do with Francis Schaeffer. In 1981, five years before I was born, Francis A. Schaeffer wrote a short book called A Christian Manifesto. The publisher's summary at Audible reads as follows. In this explosive book, Francis Schaeffer shows why morality and freedom have crumbled in our society. He calls for a massive movement in government, law, and all of life to reestablish our Judeo-Christian foundation and turn the tide of moral decadence and loss of freedom. A Christian manifesto is literally a call for Christians to change the course of history by returning to biblical truth and by allowing Christ to be Lord in all of life. Schaefer, for his part, goes through some of the recent developments. And it's interesting to remember when he talks about abortion in a Christian manifesto. In 1981, Roe v. Wade was only eight years old. It had not been the quote-unquote law of the land for all that long. We're talking the equivalent of two presidential terms. But he talks about the concern with abortion, with homosexuality, with the sexual revolution, with evolution being taught in the schools, with prayer and Bible reading being taken out of the schools. He talks about the concern that Christian influence is being driven from the public square. And he talks a little bit about the moral majority and alludes to criticisms that even Christians have towards Falwell and some of what the moral majority was saying and doing. And Schaefer says an interesting thing for a philosopher. He says that those who are critical of the moral majority should focus their attentions on how to do it better because the core premise of the moral majority is good and sound and right, even if how they're going about it could use some work. Why they're doing what they're doing, generally speaking, on a principle level is good. And we should be joining or starting something parallel to what they're doing. But I had read two books prior to this one by Francis Schaeffer. One of them, Escape from Reason, is just excellent. Schaeffer talks through art history and how we can see changes in philosophy and theology coming through in trends and what is popular in art throughout, especially Western history the style and the themes and who gets patronage tracks very closely with what we believe is wise, what we believe about God, who is God, who are we, where do we come from? How did we get here? What are we doing? Where are we going? What are we supposed to be about? I also read Schaefer's How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture, which is, again, it's more macro, it's more philosophical, it's more academic. He has something of a reputation, in my mind, the way that he's quoted or referenced, for being academic, for being intellectual, for being theological, not political. I was very surprised. I was very pleasantly surprised to be reading his book yesterday and this morning and realizing he talks quite a lot about the responsibility and heritage of American Christians and the American church and how that's under attack from those who believe in 
the communist manifesto, those who believe in the humanist manifesto. Christians need to have a manifesto, and we can only come up with an intelligible, functional Christian manifesto if we look back on our heritage, look back on what Christians throughout church history have written and said and done, for instance, civil disobedience. For those who would say, we should never challenge, we should never correct, we should never contradict, we should never debate, we should never disobey those who are in positions of governing authority because we're told to submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Before we had any inkling that we were going to go through the COVID lockdowns of the past couple of years, Francis Schaeffer was warning Christians in America 40 years prior, warning Christians in America that we have got to understand rightly instances of civil disobedience in the biblical text, Old Testament and New Testament, and throughout church history. We have to understand that it is civil disobedience when God's people cannot both obey God and man and therefore must disobey man because God's authority is higher than man's authority. Christians must understand that. They must admit that. They must meditate on that when our government increasingly is rewarding those who do evil and punishing those who do what is good. He also talks about, interestingly enough, I was really surprised by this, the tradition of Christian political thought in the West, particularly since the Protestant Reformation, particularly he's fascinated by John Knox. I would love to find a good biography of the Scottish reformer John Knox, but he talks through briefly the life story of Knox, who got in trouble with the governing authorities because he was preaching when they said don't preach. He was preaching what they told him not to preach. He made a huge impact on Scotland because he was willing to obey God rather than men when he couldn't obey both God and man. Schaefer also references Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford, which I am still very slowly making my way through. Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford, another Scottish minister having to do with the law being king because God instituted the law and God is king. The law is above the king. And if the king disobeys the law or tells you to disobey the law of God, you must obey God rather than men. And Schaefer gets into how the development of Christian political philosophy is whenever you can obey and submit yourself to the governing authorities, do so if it doesn't actually mean rebellion against God's authority. And yet this can be a complicated thing because the particular thing that the governing authority is telling you to do might be downplayed, justified, normalized, normalized with the help of people like Andy Stanley, throwing out the biblical text in favor of flattering the world. And that's why we have to be students of the word and diligent in our studies, because here's how it goes. And this is, and I kid you not, read it for yourself. Check it out. Don't take my word for it. Schaefer explains that Christians like Knox, will disobey a human authority because they're obeying God's authority. And we have a right, this is the development of Christian political philosophy, we have the right to obey God. That is right. It is right for us to obey God. That's why we know that it is a right to obey God. When human authority is trying to stop us from enjoying our right to obey God, we must obey God rather than men. If human authority threatens violence and will not be persuaded as we try to argue our case, and we should, and we should, according to the long history, according to Schaefer, according to Knox, according to Samuel Rutherford, we should make a reasoned defense for why we are obeying God rather than men and why the governing authority, which is contradicting God, needs to repent and also obey God rather than their own sinful desires. We should approach the problem with rhetoric, with reasoned arguments, in a studious, diligent, clear, articulate way. 
petition our government for a redress of grievances, you might say. And if they won't listen, and if they're threatening violence, we should try to get away. We should try to flee, if we can. And if we can't, the last resort is to fight. Now, it's interesting to me, Schaefer is not advocating for the violent overthrow of government, but rather the recognition that a restoration of law and order sometimes requires removing somebody who is abusing their authority from the office. And if they won't go willingly, then they must be forced to go. That is to say that up to and including deadly force must be used to remove them. Now think of, if you will, this recent tragedy with regards to a black man in Memphis, Tennessee, Tyre Nichols. The Billings Gazette sent out an email this morning with an article that was published titled, Tyre Nichols' case shows officers still fail to intervene. This is an AP article written by Jim Salter. The subtitle says that as Memphis police officers attacked Tyre Nichols with their feet, fists, and a baton, others held Nichols down or milled about even as he cried out in pain before his body went limp. Now you tell me, friend, you tell me, if those who don't even know God, those in the secular world are outraged at the evil and the injustice and the dereliction of duty when other law enforcement either actively participates in destroying and killing an innocent man, murdering him, or else they just mill about. They pretend that's none of their business. How can Christians be silent? Romans 13 does not just say to be subject to the governing authorities, period, Full stop, that's the only verse in the Bible with regards to our relationship to civil authorities or government. Romans 13 also says that no authority is instituted among men except by God and that the governing authority is a minister of God, a minister, a, not the minister, not the only minister, a minister. And what happened with these police officers? You know, it's interesting to me. When I heard about this whole situation, this tragedy in Memphis, Tennessee, the headline I first saw was that five former police officers had been arrested and were being charged with manslaughter. They were police officers when they murdered this innocent man. They were police officers, and then they were fired. They were removed from their positions of authority. Now, tell me this. If that is ongoing at all levels of our government or in the bureaucracies, among those who are unelected, if there is corruption of that kind that is the equivalent, sometimes in more administrative ways, sometimes in more procedural ways, death of a thousand paper cuts against all who oppose the Communist Manifesto and the Humanist Manifesto and the godlessness, would not the same response to those others in government be appropriate, just like in the case of Tyre Nichols, where those five police officers are no longer police officers, and they are also subject to all of the laws of the nation. They're not above the law. They are not the law. They are supposed to be public servants enforcing the law. Well, if the law needs to be in accordance with God's law, How will that come to be if Christians love the affirmation of the world like Andy Stanley does? How will that come to be? It won't. And when it doesn't, and I pray to God that it does, but when it doesn't, if it doesn't, because we are too stiff-necked, too complacent, too much lovers of pleasure and lovers of self, when it doesn't come to pass, the same outrage will be appropriate to feel towards us as is appropriate to feel towards those other police officers who just milled about, making sure nobody else would intervene to save Tyre Nichols from being beaten to death. If we have not even begun to think through the ramifications of these things, I would say let's start with A Christian Manifesto by Francis Schaeffer. I hear really good things about Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas, although I haven't read it yet. I'm in the process of reading Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, Also, Reflections on the Revolution in France by 
Edmund Burke is excellent. Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America is excellent. Augustine's City of God, it's a long book, but it's an excellent book. I intend to keep on educating myself in these things. I would encourage you to do so as well, because it's not going to get better here unless we roll up our sleeves, unless we get to it, unless we are more like John Witherspoon and less like Andy Stanley. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. More to come. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe. Go check out the Facebook page for The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Subscribe on the website, thegarrettashleymulletshow.com. You can sign up for email alerts. Also, I think there's eight right now, various podcast platforms that you can listen to this on. Whichever one you prefer, whichever one you're listening to on right now, this episode, hit subscribe, share it with somebody who needs to hear this, needs to be thinking about these things. But like I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.